0: man good morning i uh i have a great appreciation for west town christian academy two of my four boys are wca alumni uh their pictures are hanging on the wall they graduated last year they moved on to big people school now uh but i do certainly miss going to pick them up from down the hall there and it's just uh what a blessing to have the school as part of our community Um uh, Today we are, uh, we're moving on to something different. We've been in the book of Joshua, and I don't know if you ever read the whole book of Joshua, but, but about halfway through, uh, you stop getting you know, really cool stories, and you start getting all this like, you know, division of the land. This, this part of the land goes to Dan, and this part of the land goes to Asher, and it's, it's not that it's not preachable, it's just that it's a little bit harder to preach on, uh, on that part of Joshua. So we have concluded that series, and we are moving on to something different. Uh, today will just be kind of a one off. Uh, but I, w- I did want to let you know that next week, our, um, our new interim pastor, uh, Pastor Dwight Dunn, will be here uh, on a visit, and he's going to be preaching. And so I'd encourage you to be here for that. Um, it's also Mother's Day. It's kind of a big, guys, don't, don't forget it's Mother's Day next, next Sunday. Uh, so today, though, in, in the meantime, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about the church. And when you, when you hear that word, the church, I wonder what comes to your mind. Most people, when they hear or think of a church, they think about a building or or perhaps they think about a worship service. Like we talk about, I'm going to church. Well, that usually means I'm going to a worship service. But you may not know that the Bible, when it speaks of the church, actually never talks about the church in either of those terms. It's not talking about a building. It's not talking about a worship service. It's always in reference to a group of people, the word Church in Greek is ekklesia, which means an assembly of people. In this particular instance, it's the assembly of the people of God. And Ephesians 2 actually describes it as a household of God. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. And we'll start just by reading verse 19 of Ephesians Ephesians chapter 2. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So the first thing we're going to see this morning is that, again, the church is the household of who? Of the redeemed people of God. Verse 19 says, at one point, we were strangers and aliens. We were alienated from God. We were separated from Him. Why? Because, as Ephesians 2 says, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. To be dead in our sins means we can't have faith in God. We have no relationship with God. We're cut off from Him, separate from Him. We're spiritually dead. The Bible also talks about it as being enslaved to sin. It's kind of like when the Israelites were in in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, they were slaves to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was their master, and they were treated harshly. And in in a similar but greater way, when we are slaves to our sin before we know Jesus, sin is a harsh taskmaster. And the only way out is redemption. Redemption by who? By God. God brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And in a much greater way, He brings us out of our sin with the mighty hand of Jesus Christ. But remember, He doesn't just save us. In other, in other words, He didn't just set us free from this. He actually redeems us, which means that He has bought us back for a price for something else. And that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. He has bought us, purchased us with the blood of Christ, so that we might be part of something else. That something else is God's eternal family, His household. John 1.12 says that, but to all who did receive Him, Him is Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, He gave the right to become children of God. So we are if we are Christians, then we are the redeemed children of God, part of His family. Now, this text, though, the text doesn't use the phrases or the word children. It uses other identifying markers, citizens, saints, members. We're going to talk about what that means real quick here. So to be a citizen of God is to be set apart exclusively for God. It's kind of like, um, well, I was thinking about Lee Greenwood who's proud to be an American because at least I know I'm free. Won't forget. Okay. I thought you guys might break out in a song, but maybe it's, it's not, it's not 4th of July yet. So um, I'm proud to be an American. I like being an American. I'm an American citizen. It says so on my passport. And that means that I'm not a citizen of any other country. I'm exclusively, uh, I exclusively, exclusively belong to America. I only pay taxes to America. I don't pay taxes to Jamaica or Canada. um, I'm set apart from all other countries in the world. And in a much greater way, we are citizens of the kingdom of God if we belong to Jesus. In fact, I would even say that our citizenship in the kingdom of God is much more important to us than our citizenship in whatever country that we belong to. And so we belong exclusively to the Lord God. We owe Him our allegiance. We are set apart for His use specifically, but it also says we're citizens of God. We're also citizens of God with the saints, not the New Orleans saints and not even saints as you've probably heard about it in the Roman Catholic tradition, because when the Bible uses the word saint, it doesn't mean some like elite class of Christians who have done special miracles. When the Bible uses the word saint, it actually is referring to all Christians because the word saint means holy one or set apart one it doesn't mean someone who is holier than thou like i'm better than you because look at how how good i am at keeping the law that's that's not what it means at all it just means someone who has been redeemed and set apart for the lord god and so when you read that in the bible i don't want you thinking about you know some some saint who's been like put in some special category because they did a miracle. You are a saint. Not that you're perfect, but that you belong exclusively to the Lord. So we are citizen saints. We are set apart for God. And then the text also says that another way that we identify is as members of the household of God. The New Testament talks about being a member in 1 Corinthians 12, where it talks about how we are members of the body of Christ. In other words, some... Some are like hands you know, in the body. Some are like eyes in the body. Some are like ears in the body. And, and the body of Christ has a head as well. Ephesians one through 22-23 tells us that, that Jesus is the head of the body. And the body is the church. So again, the church is a, is a group of people. It's a household that is a body, a redeemed people. And this is our identity. This is who we are. We, we tend to think that we are... You know, individual Christians saved and, and that we have a personal relationship with Jesus, which is true. We do have that. But that is not the only identifying marker of a believer. In fact, the Bible talks about us as being saved as part of a people more often than it talks about us being saved individually. So we as Christians are members of the church, the big church, the whole household of God all over the world, across all time and space. And believe it or not, the Bible actually doesn't have a category for someone being anything else. In other words, the Bible doesn't have a category for someone saying, I'm a Christian individually and I don't need the church. That's not ever in the Scriptures. We can't be detached from the rest of the church. Again, like 1 Corinthians 12 talks about with the the members of the body, it'd be like saying, I could be a hand... You know, kind of like in the Adams family, someone, Craig Nikoloff, credit him for that illustration. Like in the Adams family, there's like a hand just walking around by itself. It can't happen. The hand depends on the body. You have to be part of the body. And in the same way, Christians, it is good and right and necessary for us to be members of the church, the big church, which means we also ought to consider membership in a local church. <clears throat> and if, you know, it just so happens... We have an opportunity for that coming up. We're offering a belong class on May 15th and 22nd. And so if you are not yet a member of Westtown Church and would like to be, there's a chance for you right there. Excuse me, I'm going to take a sip of water. This happens to me periodically. Every, every six months I'll be speaking and you know, I'd just lose my voice. Happened on Christmas Eve. No big deal. Um, now listen, I know that When we talk about church membership, there are plenty of people who have had bad experiences with church membership. And I don't want to, I mean, those are valid experiences, but I I would just encourage you not to let those experiences become normative for you. Um, In other words, if the Word of God is telling us that church membership is a valuable, important thing that is pretty necessary for us, Uh, let's let that be our compass and not our experiences with this. All right, so um, we are part of a, of a household, the people of God, the church, and this church has a rock-solid foundation. And that's what we're going to see, see in verse 20. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church's foundation, if the church is a household of God, the church's foundation is the living Word of God, and Jesus is its cornerstone. So in architecture, the cornerstone is, traditionally, when you used to build with individual stones as the foundation, the cornerstone was the first stone that you laid. And if the cornerstone was, was right, if it was level, if it was sturdy and solid, then you could lay it and then build everything out in reference to that stone, and, it, and the rest of the building would also be sturdy and level. And the Bible actually uses this imagery of the cornerstone all the way back into the Old Testament. So Isaiah 28, 16 says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And then Psalm 118, says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Later on in the New Testament, Peter picks up on this imagery. He does it twice. In in Acts chapter 4, there's a record of Peter preaching a sermon where he calls Jesus this precious cornerstone. And then in in his own epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, he again repeats it that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. So in other words, Jesus, in order to become the cornerstone of the church, the foundation of the church, he had to be rejected. Why? Well, if you remember, he came onto the scene, and most of the Jewish religious leaders, the builders, so to speak, the ones to whom God originally had come with his covenant, they rejected Jesus. They didn't like what he taught. They were threatened by him. And so They put him to death. Even though he was perfectly righteous, even though he was without sin, they handed him over to the Romans to be killed on the cross. And the cross is the climax of Jesus' rejection. When he died on the cross, he was forsaken by his own people, and he was also forsaken by his father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So his rejection is what allows him to become the cornerstone of our church because it's just like, We sang in the song, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He shed His blood on the cross, which covers our sins. He gave His life on the cross as a sacrifice so that we might have life. You understand that when Jesus died, He died for my sin and your sin. And His death counts as my death and your death, the death that we deserve for our sin. It's substitutionary. And in the same way then, his righteousness, his perfect righteousness that he earned by keeping the law of God perfectly without failure, that counts as our righteousness. And that is how we stand before God and are made right by God. It's not by us being righteous. It's by us having Christ's righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than His blood and then His righteousness. If my hope is in anything else, then I have no reason to hope. So Jesus is our substitutionary atonement. He takes our death. We get His righteousness. And then as He rose from the dead to new life, Colossians 1.18 says that He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. And so because He has risen from the dead, we know that we also will rise from the dead to new life in the new heavens and new earth. But this also means that He didn't just secure a place for us in the household of God. He actually is Himself part of the household of God. He is the first stone laid in the household of God. This is important because it means that He identifies with us. Everything that we experience, everything that we're going through, he knows, and he's there for us. Um, In Acts chapter 9, you know, Jesus comes to Saul, who was a, a Pharisee who was persecuting the Christians at that time, and he stops him in his tracks and blinds him with a vision. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice it's not, why are you persecuting my followers? It's me. My body. Why are you persecuting my body? Jesus feels what we feel. Jesus experiences what we experience. He identifies with us. He is one of us. He's also God, so he's different from us, but he's also human, so he's one of us. And so that means that when when you mess with Jesus, or when you mess with us, you mess with Jesus. Right? Like he is protecting us. He is our shepherd. He cares for us. He loves us. He's not detached from us like just some God up in the sky who is disinterested with us. The whole house depends on him to the extent that even the scriptures talk about us being fed spiritually on him. We are are nourished by Jesus even more so than our bodies are nourished by food. So the whole house depends on Jesus, and the whole house, again, is built in reference to Jesus. This is, this is uh, where it talks about how the foundation is the apostles and prophets, and Jesus is the cornerstone. So apostles and prophets is code for the Word of God. The prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament. The, the whole thing is fulfilled, though, in Christ. Without Christ, the, the prophets don't make any sense. Without Christ, the apostles don't make any sense. With Christ, they make perfect sense. The, the prophets point ahead to Jesus. The apostles point back to Jesus. They testify about Jesus. So Jesus is the, the one in whom everything comes together. Without him, there's no gospel. There's no good news. And this is why it's so, it's so strange to me and sad to me why a church would not preach the gospel. Why a church would not preach the true gospel as found in the scriptures. Galatians 1, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I I just think it's sad that a church would, would teach something like, like so so many churches will teach just that the Bible is about morality, that you can live according to the Bible is like a moral code, and that and that if you just be good, be a good person, then you'll be okay. And, and that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Other churches teach that the Bible isn't even true itself. That it's just a bunch of myths, stories that are meant to make us feel good and inspire us, and that's not true. That's not the gospel. Other churches Teach that if you just believe this stuff, God will make you healthy and wealthy. And that's certainly not true. That's not the gospel. And churches that teach those things are in danger of having no foundation. Because Christ has nothing to do with those types of teachings. The gospel is what the scriptures say it is. Like Acts 4, 11 and 12. This is where Peter talks about the cornerstone. He says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The gospel is that Jesus is the only way to salvation. There is no other way. If we think there is another way, we are building our houses, our lives on sand, on shifting sand, on a foundation that will not last. Again, as we sang on, on Christ the solid rock, I stand all other ground is shifting sand. That's what Matthew 7 talks about. Jesus says that everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You guys know the story, right? Maybe you know the song that, about the wise, the wise and foolish builders. The floods came and the wise man who built his house on the rock, his, his house stood. It was fine. But the foolish man, for some reason, he built his house on sand. I don't even know why anybody would do that. Why would you build your house on sand? Everybody knows that's foolish, but he did it and it washed away. And this illustrates the necessity that we build our lives, we base our identity, that we base our security on Jesus and on His Word. What does that mean? Well, if we, if, we, if we know that Jesus is our salvation, then we know our salvation is secure. If we know that Jesus is our identity, it's where we find our identity, the fact that we are in Christ, then our identity is secure. If we Trust Jesus, then we know that our place in God's household is secure because Jesus never fails. Jesus is perfect. But without Jesus, we have no assurance of truth, no assurance of salvation. We built a life on shifting sand. This is why we must measure everything according to God's word. Do you believe something? Do you think something? Do you think you know something? Measure it against God's word to find out if it's true, to find out if it's wise. Measure what I say. If I'm preaching or if someone else is preaching, measure what they say according to God's word. I I hope that you trust what I'm saying is true, but don't take it for granted. Look at the scriptures to see what I'm saying is true. There is much at stake here. We must measure our teachings, our our preaching, the things that we believe, the things that we think, We must measure them against the truth of God's Word, which is ultimate truth. And in so doing, we have ourselves a solid foundation for our church and for our lives. But the foundation is just a foundation, and we're building on it, but the text says the building is not yet complete. Look at verses 21-22. through says, in, the whom, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so God is building the church, the household of God, into a future glorified church. And this is, well, I say it's the hope of the world, but it's really the vessel through which God delivers the news of the hope of the world. So you, in verse 22 here, where, where it says, in Him you also are being built together. You is a plural you. In fact, you is used three times in this text and it's always plural. So it's, uh, as someone else encouraged me after first service, I should tell you that it's it actually should be translated as all you right? This is all y'all. Or if you're from Philadelphia, it's you's. You's guys are being built into A dwelling place for God. Paul is saying that we are being built into a temple, a dwelling place for God, by the Holy Spirit, together. That we are being matured and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, not just as individuals, but together. Back to the word saint. Remember we mentioned that saint means holy one. In the Greek it's hagios, that's the noun form. The verb form of that root is hagios, and it means to be sanctified, to be made holy, to be perfected. Not that we will ever be perfect in this life, but if you're a believer in Christ, then the the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you to make you more and more like Jesus, to make you more and more hate your sin and want to live your life in obedience for Christ. This is the process that all of us go through throughout our whole lives. And so if you want to use the term, you could say that, that the Spirit is making you more saintly. That's what He's doing. But He's not just doing that as individuals. He's not just changing you as an individual. He's changing us together. He's growing us together. What does that mean? Well, it means that as members of the body of Christ, we depend on one another. We need each other. You need the church. The church needs you and your gifts. We encourage one another. We are called to carry one another's burdens. And listen, that means that if you have burdens, you need to let us know what they are so that we can help you carry them. We we can't carry one another's burdens if we don't know what the burdens are. This means that when one member suffers, we all suffer. When someone is going through a really hard time in the church, we share in that, we feel that, we pray for that person, we suffer with that person, and we help each other grow in Christ. There's a pastor named Mark Dever up in Washington, D.C., and he says that discipling, which you could say is learning to Live like Jesus or be like Jesus. Discipling is just a bunch of church members taking responsibility to prepare one another for glory. We are being prepared for something. It's not complete yet, but we are working towards something that will be complete one day. So when we lived in Tennessee, we actually got to build a house. Not that we ourselves built it with our bare hands because that would be kind of funny to come and watch me build a house out of, like, sticks and metal and stuff, but uh, we contracted with someone, obviously, to build a house, and uh, it was really exciting to be able to go out to the site and, and see the progress, and, you know, we'd go out there, and uh, one, one time we went out there, and we were walking through, they had framed it, and they framed the, the kitchen completely wrong, and that was, that was sort of a headache and a mess, but that's building for you, but uh, so it was just exciting, though, to imagine like as we walk through the framed house, just to imagine what will, what will this look like when it's finished, when it's complete, when it's, we can finally move in. Like at that point, you know, the foundation was poured, the land was, was in our name, it was effectively our house, but it wasn't the complete our house. Not all the, pe- not all the pieces were in place yet. And Ephesians 2 is saying that in a similar way, the household of God is the household of God, but it's not complete yet. There's still work to be done. God is growing us by His Spirit toward a finished product. What a finished product it will be. Revelation 7-9 tells us what that finished product will look like. Remember, it's not a house, it's not a building, it's a people. It says, after this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, and people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. By the way, clothed in white robes means perfectly righteous. And with palm branches in their hands means they're celebrating the King. So the the entire household of God is going to include people from every race, every ethnicity, every language from all over the world. Not not every person in the whole world, but people from every imaginable people group that you can think of will all be all around the throne together worshiping our King, King Jesus. God is with us now by His Spirit, but this is saying that there will be a time when we will be with God and He will be with us in a way that is physical and visible, we will be able to sit with him at his table and eat with him and look him in the eyes and ask him all the crazy questions you ever wanted to ask him. That time will come. Can you imagine what that will be like? When the whole group, everyone that's ever been a Christian across all time and space will be there together. That's the complete picture. Will you be there? I want want you to consider. Will you be there? Do you know Jesus? Do you believe this gospel that is in the Scriptures that says that Jesus is the only way that we will only enter through the gates of heaven if we enter based on Jesus' righteousness? Are you redeemed? I hope that you are and I hope that we understand that, that us... The church telling others about this is the hope of the world. The perfect kingdom of God is coming. And in some ways, it's already started to come, as Jesus said. And this is our great hope. We we are called to tell other people about it. We're called to tell other people that it's an even better hope than than lowering inflation or or than ending a war or ending a pandemic or finding a cure for cancer or anything like that. These are good things, and we want those things, but ultimately, our hope is that Jesus comes and redeems creation and redeems his people. And sometimes I wonder, why why hasn't he just done that yet? Why not just come now? Just come. I mean, we have created a mess here in this world, and we've been doing that since Adam and Eve. Just come back already. Why are you waiting, Jesus? Jesus. You ever wondered that? I don't know why. We're not going to know when he comes or anything like that. But I think it may be because all of the citizens, saints, and members are not in the household of God yet. There are more people. There are people still in this world who have no access to the gospel, who have never heard of Jesus, who, who couldn't go to church if they wanted to. So he's waiting, I think, until all of our future brothers and sisters in Christ are are part of the family. And until then, we as a church are called to pray. We're called to pray for the church to grow, for God to grow his church, for God to add more and more people to the household of God. We're called to maintain unity in our church so that our church is actually something that looks different and different and inviting to the world. You know, there's an overarching theme here in this passage that is the, the incredible, amazing, surprising truth that God is somehow uniting both Jew and Gentile together in the church. And I don't know if you know the background here, but Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Jews looked down on Gentiles probably more so than, than any other you know, ethnic conflict you could ever imagine and yet they're somehow uniting as part of the church it makes me think of remember the titans you know this story of in the 70s in, in alexandria virginia this this high school there were two segregated high schools and all of a sudden segregation's over and these 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 black guys and white guys are coming together in a school and on a football team and they somehow they got to figure out how to be a football team together but that's really difficult because they don't like each other they don't trust each other And they're not used to being together. But then, of course, that just means you need Denzel Washington to come save the day. Right? Coach Herman Boone comes in, and he is a strong leader who demands unity. And he actually finds a way to unite these guys, and they become an unstoppable football team. They go undefeated. And in a much greater way, what... An amazing picture of Jesus' power, of the truth of who Jesus says he is, if the church is a united church. If we are somehow able to come together as Christians, and that that identity marker of being citizens, saints, and members of the household of God is a more important identity marker, even than the fact that we are Democrat or Republican, black or white, rich or poor. If Jesus can unite people like that, together as one people then he must be who he says he is. He is powerful beyond anything that we can possibly imagine if that kind of unity can exist in the church. That's why unity is something we're sacrificing for. We can't sacrifice the gospel for it, but we can sacrifice a lot of other things for it, especially petty disagreements, squabbles, things that don't really matter. How are we doing on our unity? And how are we doing on our gospel? Are we we preaching and teaching the Gospel here? I hope so. If not, then I'm failing. (laughs) And are we encouraging, are we praying for people to go out into the harvest? Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So let's pray for God to send out workers, laborers into the fields. And that's, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be praying for God to send out workers to go tell people about the Gospel. We also need to consider whether or not He's calling us to go and whether or not he's calling us to send. How can we go? How can we send other people to go? The most important way, though, that we can assure that we're, we're working towards that is by assuring ourselves that we know the gospel, we believe the gospel, that we're willing to talk about the gospel. So Westtown is not perfect. There's no church in this world that's perfect. The, the whole church in the world right now is not perfect. It's not complete. We are a mess in many ways, but we are still the redeemed people of God. We have the living word of God as our foundation, with Jesus as our cornerstone, and because of that, we can be assured that he is perfecting us and growing us into something that will one day be complete and beautiful. Let's pray together.